0: Well, dear friends, let us rise for the reading of God's Word. Again, we're continuing to take a a break during this Advent season from our consideration of the Gospel of uh, of Mark. And this morning, we're actually in the Gospel of Matthew. My sermon text today is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. Dear friends, let us hear with reverence and awe the word of our God. Reading from the New American Standard Version. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matthan, and Matthan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations, From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Dear ones, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray for the Lord to bless our our study of his word this morning. Our gracious Lord God, Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are the God of history, that all of history is working out and and falling out according to your sovereign and eternal plan. And we thank you that Christ is the center of all history, not only cosmic history, but our, our own personal history as well, as Christ is indeed our Savior and King. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, as we consider this portion of your word this morning, that you would open our minds and our hearts to behold wondrous things from your word, feed our souls through that which we consider today, And we ask that you would deepen and strengthen our faith, our hope, and our love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The title of my sermon this morning is Genealogy of God's Chosen King. And if you're following along in your sermon outline, you'll notice that there's three words that... You can be listening for, if you find that helpful, to follow along in the sermon, and those words are Messiah, covenant, and promise. Well, my dear listeners, the Gospel of Matthew appears to have been written to Jewish Christians in the early church in order to confirm their faith in Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah that had been promised by God in the Old Testament scriptures. And though the gospel itself is technically anonymous, the united, unanimous testimony of the early church affirms that this gospel was written by none other than the Apostle Matthew. And in spite of the fact that many critical and skeptical scholars have gone to great lengths to argue against Matthew's authorship, there's really no compelling reason not to accept the early church's unified, united testimony to the Apostle Matthew as the author of the gospel that bears his name. Now, our passage for this Lord's Day morning is Matthew's introduction to his gospel account. And as I was reading this passage, I suspect that some of you might have been thinking to yourself, oh boy, this is going to be a snoozer of a sermon. We're considering a genealogy. Uh, how boring, right? You may wonder, why does Matthew begin his gospel with a genealogy of Jesus. I mean, usually if you're writing a book or if you're giving a speech, uh, the the common wisdom is, well, you want to start off your book or your speech or your lecture with a hook. You want to you grab your audience's attention and draw them in so that they pay attention to what you have to say. But is this really uh, an effective hook, if you will? How is it that by... Beginning his gospel with a genealogy, Matthew expects to draw in his readers and and keep their attention. Well, we need to understand that Matthew is addressing a different audience than a 21st century Christian audience. You see, for us 21st century Christians, reading the genealogical lists of the Bible is about as exciting and interesting as, say, reading a copy of the phone book or perhaps reading a table of technical statistics. But for the Jews of the first century who knew Old Testament history and who knew their scriptures, genealogies like this one would indeed serve as an appropriate hook for them. It would draw them into Matthew's narrative, for it would bring to their minds important truths and events and personalities from their own scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. You see, the purpose of the genealogies in the Bible is not merely to give factual information about family and tribal history and so forth, forth. although uh, the genealogies of Scripture certainly do that. But we need to understand that biblical genealogies were also recorded for the purpose of teaching theological truths about God's redemptive work in history. And what is true of biblical genealogies in general is also true here in Matthew's Gospel as he presents his readers with the genealogy of Jesus, God's chosen king. That's what the term Messiah or Christ means, God's anointed one, his anointed, chosen, uh, spirit-endowed king. Now we need to, if we're going to appreciate and understand what the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Matthew is doing here in this passage we first of all need to observe and understand the structure and significance of Christ's genealogy. And uh, children, if you're following along in your, in your uh, uh, sermon outline, that's my first main point. Observe the structure and significance of Christ's genealogy. Now friends, as we will see, under the Spirit's inspiration, the Apostle Matthew structured this genealogy of Jesus Christ in a way that strongly highlights and strongly underscores the messianic royalty and kingship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is, that, is what, that, that is what this genealogy, if, if you will, shouts out at us. Jesus is the royal Messiah. He is the royal king promised by the Father. And from the very first verse, it also emphasizes that the covenant promises which God had given to Abraham the patriarch and later on uh, to King David in Old Testament times, that these promises are fulfilled in Jesus the Christ. Again, the Christ being God's anointed chosen king. Now in verse 1, what we have here is the title and introduction of this genealogy. And let me just read this verse again. Matthew begins his gospel in verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is, again, as I mentioned, this is intended as a title or introduction to the genealogy. Now, I read from the New American Standard Version. I prefer the ESV here, uh, translation on this particular verse. That version reads, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is a caption, a title, a heading, but that leads Bible scholars to, a, to ask uh, important questions. Namely, does this uh, introductory statement here, this title, this uh, heading or caption here in verse 1, is it intended to uh, introduce uh, just this genealogy, or is Matthew intending this verse and this genealogy to introduce the opening chapters of his gospel such as chapters 1 and 2 or is it intended as an introduction to the whole gospel account well scholars are divided on that particular question but it seems at least at the very least to be introducing the opening uh, the opening passage here if not the opening chapters of this gospel account now how is Jesus spoken of here in this passage well again it is said the record the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah or Jesus Christ both of those names are significant children what does the name Jesus mean what does the name Jesus mean it means the lord is salvation the name Jesus or yeshua means The Lord is salvation. And what an appropriate name for the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. He is Jesus, the one who is, by definition, the Lord our salvation. But what about the term Christos or Christ, which is a a Greek translation of the Hebrew term for Messiah? Well, that word, Christ or Messiah, was originally a title. But over time, because the name Jesus was closely associated with the title Christ, over time, Jesus and Christ were, were read together as if Christ was his last name. And here in this particular context, it appears uh, that Christ, the term Christ, seems to have come to be used as a last name, more than as a title. But at the same time, the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, the one who is the Christ, or anointed one, came to be called Jesus Christ, still underscores his royal messiahship. And what is surprising about this opening verse, this opening title, is Jesus' uh, Jesus's lineage. His lineage is traced to David and ultimately to Abraham. The record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, you may be scratching your head and thinking, well, wait a minute. Jesus was not the son of David. David lived centuries before uh, the Lord Jesus came to this earth, and Abraham lived even uh, further into ancient history. Well, by introducing our Lord's genealogy and his whole gospel with these words, What Matthew is indicating is his intention to demonstrate in his gospel that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the promised Messiah, the one in whom all of the covenant promises made to the patriarch Abraham and all of the covenant, the royal covenant promises made to King David. In Christ, those covenant promises are ultimately fulfilled. Now, again, as I pointed out, there were multiple generations between King David and Jesus, and even more generations between the patriarch Abraham and Jesus. Yet Matthew tells us that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Is, is Matthew in error here? Is Matthew being deceptive? Is he using the term son in some kind of a deceptive way? Well, no. Friends, this is just one of numerous instances in Scripture which shows us that genealogies in the Bible are sometimes, sometimes, uh, and, and often in fact, intentionally selective. And they may contain generational gaps. Sometimes even large gaps, such as verse 1. Now, Matthew goes on to fill in those gaps a little bit uh, when he gives this, the further genealogical information. But there are gaps in this genealogy from the standpoint of verse 1. It's important to understand, friends, that in the Bible the term son of can sometimes mean, more broadly, descendant of, just as the term father of can sometimes mean ancestor of. And that is how uh, the term son is being used here. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, he is the son of David in the sense that he's descended from David and ultimately descended from Abraham. I don't think in verse 1... Uh, Matthew's intending to say that that, uh, that, uh, David was a son of Abraham, although David certainly was, but it is Jesus who is described as son of David and son of Abraham. There are a number of kings and perhaps some other individuals that Matthew also chose to exclude from his genealogical list here in chapter 1. Again, not because Matthew was mistaken or uninformed or being deceptive, but because he had a purpose behind his intentional selectivity. And we need to understand, friends, that this was, this was regarded as a, as a perfectly acceptable literary practice in Bible times. And Matthew was selective because he wanted to structure his genealogy to include three groups of 14 ancestors for symbolic and theologically significant purposes. And we're going to take a look at that. Now, we're not going to go through all these names. Don't worry. We'd be here a very long time if we uh, considered all of these names and and the significance of all of these names. But I want to have us look at the, the symbolic structuring of this genealogy. Matthew explains at the end of this genealogical list in verse 17, he explains the symbolism that he's getting at by structuring his genealogy in this way. As it says in verse 17... So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. Notice, by the way, that 14 is, you know, 7 times 2 is 14. The number 7 is very significant uh, as a symbolic number in Scripture. Um, The generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, how many generations? 14 generations. Now, this was probably done to emphasize the royal messianic kingship of Jesus as the son of David. Well, what are you talking about, Pastor? Well, in the Hebrew language, names uh, could have a numerical significance. And as Dr. D.A. Carson explains in his commentary, the simplest explanation, the one that best fits the context, observes that the numerical value of the name David in Hebrew is 14. By this symbolism Matthew points out that the promised son of David referred to in verse 1, the Messiah, has come. And if the third set of 14 is short one member, perhaps it will suggest to some readers that just as God cuts short the time of distress for the sake of his elect, as our Lord Jesus will explain, in his Olivet Discourse in chapter 24, verse 22, so also he mercifully shortens the period from the exile to Jesus the Messiah. Now let's focus in on the three major eras of redemptive history that are covered by Matthew in this genealogy. The first set of 14 ancestors that are recorded in verses 2 through the first part of verse 6 these ancestors cover the history of God's covenant people from the time of the patriarch Abraham up until the time of King David. And so this first set of 14 ancestors traces the rise of the Davidic monarchy. The second set of 14 ancestors, recorded uh, from verse 6 through verse 11, this covers the history of God's covenant people during the era of the kings, beginning with King David, and ending with the tragedy of Judah's deportation into exile in the land, the pagan land of Babylon, which was a judgment of God upon his people for their covenant-breaking, their unfaithfulness. This era underscores the tragic event of the loss of the royal throne to the house of David. Uh, we don't seem to, to really get today just what an impact that made upon the Jews uh, at that time to uh, around the time of the Babylonian exile, to see their beloved city sacked and their temple, the great temple of Solomon destroyed, and to be dragged off away from God's presence, which was represented by the temple and and so forth, to be dragged away into a foreign land, the land of Babylon, to see the end of of, uh, the Davidic king reigning on the throne in Jerusalem was a tragedy. But the third set of 14 ancestors is the answer to that tragedy. That's recorded, this third set of 14 ancestors, which is recorded in verses 12 through 16. This covers the history of God's covenant people from the tragedy of their exile in Babylon through post-exilic times when the people were able to return from Babylon and rebuild the temple, the second temple, up until the birth of Jesus Christ. And so the point here in this structuring is, again, to underscore the fact that in Christ, the one who is the son of David and the son of Abraham, in Christ, the royal throne of David is restored, at least spiritually speaking. For Jesus Christ, as we like to say, Jesus Christ is great David's greater son. David, in the Old Testament, was a type, a picture, of the future Messiah who would come and not only reign over his covenant people, but would reign over all of creation for the sake of his people. Jesus Christ, great David's greater son, he is the ultimate fulfillment of the royal Davidic line, for he is the Messiah, God's chosen divine king. But you may have picked up on an interesting feature of this this genealogy as we read in verse 16. Notice that Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus Jesus Uh, through his legal father, Joseph. Uh, Matthew is not giving the genealogy from Mary. He's giving the genealogy that leads to our Lord's legal father, Joseph. As it says in verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. What's the significance of that? Why does Matthew do that? Well, this is an important detail because... Jesus could only be counted or regarded as a son of David and therefore as an heir to the Messianic promises if his legal father was a descendant of King David. That's what the prophecies of the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would be of the house and lineage of David. Now, does that mean that that Matthew is denying the virginal conception of Christ? Well, no, because later on in this very chapter... Uh, Matthew records uh, the events of the conception and birth, the supernatural conception and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Matthew's not denying the virgin birth. Matthew makes it clear here and in the verses that follow that Jesus was indeed conceived by the Holy Spirit and therefore that Joseph was not our Lord's natural biological father, but Joseph was Jesus's legal father. And it was necessary for Jesus's legal father to be a descendant of David in order for uh, the messianic promises regarding uh, the Messiah being a son of David to apply uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now now that we've considered the basic structure and significance of this genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ, let's consider some of the other truths that we can learn from this important passage of God's word. And, And we could spend a lot of time In this passage, there's many uh, lessons uh, that we could learn from this passage, but I want us to uh, focus in especially, I want us to consider next, how this genealogy answers some of the Jewish slanders that have been raised against the origin of our Lord Jesus. This is my second main point in your outline. Consider how this genealogy answers some of the Jewish slanders that have been raised against the origin of our Lord Jesus. If you were to talk to a committed Orthodox Jew and ask such a a religious Jew what they believe about Jesus of Nazareth, well, uh, you would probably get an answer like this. Well, Jesus was a false prophet. He was a sorcerer. And not only that, he was an illegitimate child of Mary. He was a bastard child. He was illegitimately conceived, conceived out of wedlock. Now, it's interesting that Matthew's gospel lists in its genealogy, this, uh, this genealogy here that Matthew presents, lists a number of women. And given the culture of the time and given the practice uh, of that time, uh, it was a patriarchal culture, uh, it was not common to list female names in genealogies unless, uh, and when a woman was listed in the genealogical lists, it was because that woman had a very special or particular historic significance uh, within within the history of the genealogy. Uh, Again, many commentators have noticed that Matthew's genealogy includes a number of Old Testament women who were ancestors of our Lord. Why does Matthew do this? Let me just, again, review some of the verses. Look at verse 3. It says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And then skip down to verse 5. It says, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And then skip down to verses 6 and 7. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. And then verse 7, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and so forth. Why these, the, the mention of these particular women? Well, again, one suggestion that I, that I find persuasive is that Matthew here is apparently subtly seeking to answer the Jewish slander against Jesus, the slander that said that he was illegitimately born, that he was born of fornication, uh, by mentioning these women. The mention of women like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba were likely included by Matthew to counteract the allegation that Jesus was conceived out of wedlock. Well, how is that, Pastor? Well, think about it. Let's let's go through and and consider some of these women and consider the grace of God in the the lives of these these women in spite of uh, the circumstances that we will consider. Back in the book of Genesis, we learn that Tamar had conceived Perez and Zerah through an incestuous union with Judah, her father-in-law. Judah was a, a rather seedy character as one of the patriarchs. He was uh, not a good fellow. He was there uh, when Joseph was sold into slavery. Judah was all in, in, in favor of that. And we read of Judah moving out of Canaan or, or moving out of uh, the house of his father, marrying a Canaanite woman. He gave birth to his first two sons were Ur and Onan. And uh, God slew, God killed those sons of Judah because of their wickedness. Uh, and Tamar, who had been the husband of these—I'm uh, sorry—the wife of these uh, two sons of Judah, uh, Tamar was left alone, uh, as uh, Shelah, the third son of Judah, had not been given to her in marriage. And she's thinking, "What can I do?" I, you know, when you were a woman back then, you needed a, a man for support. There weren't many options for uh, for uh, outside of prostitution for uh, for a woman to survive unless she was connected with. Uh, with a household, and so she dresses herself up, covers her face as a prostitute. Judah goes into her, and she conceives Perez and Zerah by them. And so a pretty, uh, pretty uh, seedy uh, account of what goes on there. Or think of Rahab. Who was Rahab? Well, she was a Canaanite woman. And before coming to faith in the true and living God, the God of Israel, she had been a prostitute. But she welcomed the spies, and she was embraced in God's covenant people in spite of her, uh, her background. What about Ruth? Well, Ruth was a Moabitess. And while the scriptures speak highly of Ruth's character, she was a descendant of Lot, and therefore one whose ancestor had been conceived through an incestuous union. You can read about that in Genesis uh, 19 verses 30 to 38, that passage indicates that after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's daughters had gotten their father drunk so that they could conceive children by him. And one of those children, Moab, was Ruth's ancestor. And of course, we read of Bathsheba, this was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, That's, she's mentioned in verse 6, um, this woman, Bathsheba, was the woman with whom David famously had committed adultery. And so, you might say, well, pastor, this isn't really edifying stuff. Well, yeah, I got some news from you. I got some news for you. If you read the Bible, not every, you know, reading the Bible is not like reading chicken soup for your soul. The Bible, not everything in the Bible is edifying in the sense of, you know, uplifting. The Bible is very honest and forthright about human sin and wickedness. And so, in connection with these women in Israel's history, there was a lot of sin, a lot of wickedness. And yet, the Lord Jesus uh, was regarded as a descendant of them, legally speaking. Now again, why would Matthew mention all of these Old Testament women with, this, uh, with, sor- with their sordid histories? Why would he mention these women in his genealogy of Jesus? Well, I think Lenski, Dr. Lenski is correct when he suggests that Matthew brings up these stains from Israel's history as a way of responding to Jewish slanders against the Lord Jesus. Again, to quote quote from Dr. Lenski, he says this, let them occupy themselves with these real stains attested in the Old Testament history itself, and not slander the pure maiden whom God chose to be the mother of his son. So again, remember, Matthew's writing to a Jewish context, uh, to a context of Jewish Christians, who would be familiar with all of these names, all of these personalities, and the sordid history connected with them, and they would understand, oh yeah, our our Jewish neighbors who reject Jesus as the Messiah, they claim, well, he's just, you know, he was illegitimately conceived, illegitimately born, he's a bastard child. Well, remember your own history, okay? And obviously, Matthew goes on to record the real story behind Jesus' birth, namely, his miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And by the way, I'll be preaching on the uh, vital doctrine of the virgin birth this evening uh, for our service this evening as we consider the virgin birth as an essential doctrine of our holy Christian faith. Well, in closing, dear friends, what are some takeaways that we can get from all of this? You might be thinking, well, this is, uh, I have never looked at a genealogy this way before. I've never understood uh, why these details were here in this particular genealogy, but what is, how does this connect to me? How does this com- connect to the church today? Well, I think many things could be said, but I think a couple of important things need to be highlighted. And so this is my final point, some lessons for personal application from this passage. What we learn in this genealogy, brothers and sisters, is that God is faithful to keep his promises against all odds. God is faithful to keep his promises against all odds. This genealogy emphasizes that the coming of Jesus the Messiah, the advent of Jesus the Messiah, took place through an historical process that was guided by God's special providence. A process that, whereby God shows victory even over a sin in the life of his people. Now, there were times in that history of God's people, there were times when it looked like God's promises would fail. Times such as the loss of the Davidic throne at the time of the exile to Babylon. But in the fullness of time, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a woman, to be born of Mary, whose uh, husband was Joseph. Jesus' legal father. And therefore, God's promises proved to be true after all. And what that means for you and for me, brother and sister in Christ and dear listener, what that means is that God's promises are true, even if they don't seem to be true. Even if they don't seem to us, even if we wonder, well, how's God going you know, to work out his, his will in this situation? Oh, God is faithful. He is faithful to his warnings, where he warns of wrath against sin, and do not let uh, God's patience and forbearance uh, fool you. His patience, his long suffering, is intended to lead us to repentance. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and uh, covenant faithfulness. And so, as as we're told in Second Peter. God is not the Lord is not slow as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wanting any to uh, to perish, but willing that all should come to repentance. All of His people should. He He is patient that all of His people should be called uh, to Himself by grace. But God is also faithful to His promises of salvation, because God has shown His faithfulness to keep His promises. Throughout redemptive history, you can be sure that his promises of grace in the gospel are certain. And you can bank your eternity on them. John 3.16. John 3.16 is sure and certain. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Are you, dear listener, trusting in God's promises of forgiveness and grace and salvation that are offered to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ? God's word is true. He keeps his promises. And if you come to Christ, if through sovereign grace God opens your eyes to see your sin and to see Christ as your only hope of salvation, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come to Jesus Christ and find rest for your soul. Take the burden, the weight of your sin, and dump that at the foot of the cross. Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners just like you and me. And he rose from the dead so that whoever believes in him, trusts in him and him alone, for salvation from sin might not perish but have everlasting life. This passage of scripture, because it shows that God is faithful to keep his promises, to bring about the coming of the Messiah, It underscores the truth that he is faithful to keep all of his promises. His word is trustworthy. Trust in his word. I think another lesson, another takeaway from this passage is that the great variety of individuals that are mentioned in our Lord's genealogy, both the good and the evil, both the moral and the immoral, these individuals highlight the amazing grace and humiliation of our Savior And it shows that he came to save all kinds of people. Even people like Rahab the prostitute. Even people like a covenant outsider like Ruth the Moabitess. Who by grace became part of and was enfolded in God's people. And so dear listener. This highlights that our savior is indeed a savior of sinners. Sinners like me. Sinners like you. And oh, what amazing grace. Oh, what amazing condescension our Lord showed in coming to this earth to redeem us from our sins. Dear friends, let us take these truths to heart and by the grace of God, may the implications of these truths be worked out practically in our lives. For the glory and honor and praise of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the Royal Anointed Divine King, our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and Father in Heaven, Sovereign and Eternal God, we thank You that You sent Your Son Jesus to be our Savior. We thank You, Lord, that You are faithful to keep Your covenant promises. We thank You, Lord, that Your Word is indeed trustworthy. We ask, Lord, that You would strengthen our faith through what we've considered today, and may Your Holy Spirit Draw forth from us praise uh, in response to what we've heard today. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Dear friends, as we close our time together, we'll rise and sing as our hymn of response number 303, All Praise to You, Eternal Lord.